Hey guys, just before we start, I'd like to thank our new patrons from the month of March. So thank you, Amber. Thanks, Jules, for upping your pledge. Welcome, John. And as well as some people who dropped some change in the tip jar. So thank you, Lindsay, Meredith, and Carrie. You guys are so supportive of the cult, and I appreciate you guys so much, especially in this weird COVID-19 time zone we're living in. And now on to the episode. Welcome back, collective devotees. We're back with Allison, who is not your little lady. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) I'm my own. (laughs) We are having too much fun Mm -hmm. and have had some sake. Some sake, but had to make sure I could read. So. <laughs> I cannot continue to drink. I gotta go grocery shopping after this. Oh. You know, night grocery shopping is very underrated. Uh-huh. You have to you have to go like nine o'clock is that sweet spot because they're restocking, mm-hmm. but everyone's gone pretty much. When I worked in newspapers, I was always working the two to like eight thirty shift. And so I would always like when I went grocery shopping, it was always like a nine o'clock and like the public's closed at 10 so just being there by myself for the most part picking up things and like no lines it was amazing it's amazing yeah it's it's the best thing ever it's oh, i love it i used to do it in college all the time it was great it was me and all the international students who had cars nicer than anything i'll ever own <laughs> <laughs> like straight up always mm-hmm. so do you know allenberg the story of his life no okay i don't i already warned her it's gonna get real dark and i'm I'm ready for that sadness i've got i was prepped for the past week and a half (laughs) on being sad so (laughs) i'm prepped (laughs) so he is gonna he's really known for being i don't know like a radio dj i guess is what you call it um in colorado so he was actually a native of chicago he came from a a Jewish family. He went to the University of Colorado, Denver, then transferred to the University of Denver. So we just bypassed a lot of his life really quickly. But he's really known for what he does later on. He was like five when he went to college. Yeah. <laughs> well, just he was. <laughs> he's just so young. <laughs> well, we don't really like. I was kind of like, okay, there's a lot to shorten the episode, so it's not twelve hours long. Shorten it. Yeah, he's fascinating. Um, I love this. One of his fun facts on everything that you see is he was 22 when he became one of the youngest people to pass the Illinois State Bar Exam, and he actually practiced law in Chicago. I'm like, dang. That's, that is young. Mm-hmm. I wasn't that focused when I was 20, 21. Is that what you said? 22? 22. Yeah, I wasn't that focused. Mm-mm. No. So that meant like he hurried up after college to become a lawyer. Uh-huh. He worked in Chicago for 10 years, but he had kind of changed his life because he began experiencing seizures really frequently, and he decided a healthy way of dealing with that was by drinking heavily. You know, that um, classic. Yeah, I think that's a lot of people's solutions <laughs> when they're having issues. It's not the best. No, not for seizures. No. Oh, yeah, that would be, mm. That'd be really bad. But would it, like, slow his brain down where it wouldn't be – I don't know how – I mean, I don't know exactly how seizures work. I'm not a doctor. But would it, like – I don't know. I feel like it. there's some things that are, like, overactive, and maybe that's what 
He's trying to numb his brain so it stops happening. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Doctors, don't get mad at me. <laughs> we are not doctors. We do not know. So his wife, Judith, was like, you need to get help. Please get help for like the drinking and the seizures. So he's like, yeah, you know what? You're right. He quits his practice. So he's like, okay, I'm. we're going to try to deal with this head on. They move to Denver, which is Judith, his wife's hometown. He goes into rehab, but the seizures continue. So they're like, okay, it's not just the drinking and the stressful lifestyle. They go to the doctor. They find um, a brain tumor, and he has it removed, and he fully recovers. He, this is, it's kind of funny. If you see pictures of him, he always has um, bangs. Bangs? Yeah, he's a man with bangs. A man with bangs? <laughs> I'm confused. <laughs> yeah. Well, he has bangs because he wanted to cover up his surgical scars. Because remember, he had a brain surgery, so he doesn't, uh, like, think about it. If you don't want to, if you're kind of self-conscious about that. So he had a chili bowl his whole adult life? Um, I'm trying to remember <laughs> what style of bangs it oh, was. Were they emo bangs? Were they only, they, like, swept over? Uh, what, if, it's, what if he had baby bangs? <laughs> no, no, they're they're luscious bangs. But it's like a bowl cut style. Uh-huh. So he had a chalupal. I guess yeah. people don't call it chalupal. That's what we called it. Oh, yeah. No, I've never heard that called that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that might have just been my family. I don't know. Because, <laughs> like, I tell people that all the time. And they're like, what are you talking about? And then I say bowl cut. And they're like, oh, I get it. Yeah. I guess you just have the bowl cut is your chili bowl. Yeah, you eat chili that. out of the bowl that you got your bowl cut from. So it's a chili bowl on your head. I love that. <laughs> so... They stay in Denver. Uh, Alan decides to open a clothing store, and this is where he would meet KGMC talk show host Lawrence Gross. They really become friends, and Gross actually has Berg on a show several times, and Gross goes to take a job in San Diego, and he goes, you know what? Who should replace me? This guy, Alan Berg. And we see him actually taking the position, but then moves to another station in Denver called K-H. It looks like K-How. K-How. K-How in the morning. I don't know. (laughs) He gets fired from that job, goes back to KGMC, and then we see him out of a job again because the station was like, you know what? We're going to do all music. So he loses his job because Hmm. of that. Since he was so popular when he was on, he is getting courted by a couple stations, and he decides to work with KOA starting in 1981. And this is where he'll work up until his death. You could receive his radio show program in more than 30 states, which, damn. That's a lot. Impressive. He's known for being liberal, social, uh, liberal, social, and political views. So he, he swings pretty far left. And <laughs> <laughs> this was, I didn't realize this was the unintentional theme of these two episodes, but we're going to go with it. <laughs> And really was known for upsetting callers to a point where they couldn't really talk. They were stuttering, sputtering, like all of that. And then he would berate them. Oh. Yeah. That's kind of mean. Yeah, it's not not the best. But I, mean, I feel like he would berate me on the, the episode <laughs> that we recorded before because I'm such a terrible reader out loud. <laughs> I think it was mainly for some people who were like spewing hate or like, Things oh, like that. Oh, so he he would berate the people who are being hateful. Yeah. That's fine. That's fine. So Clarissa Piccola Estes, who wrote in 
2007, quote, he didn't pick on the poor, the frail, the under undefeated, undefended. He chose Roderick Elliott and Frank Bud Farrell, who wrote um, The Death of the White Race, an open letter to the Gentiles and other people from white supremacist groups, the groups who openly espoused hatred of blacks, Jews, leftists, homosexuals, Hispanics, and other minorities and religious groups, end quote. And she um, is of the Moderate Voice website. So he really was that person who was like, I'm going to speak it. I'm going to defend the people that are basically getting beat up on, yeah. on these and try to sh- like make these people realize the issues and their viewpoints. I take back everything I said about him being mean in that way. <laughs> <laughs> he really had no problem viewing his opinions on air really confidently, really energetically. He actually enjoyed it. He really would get people to like to call, especially like white supremacist groups. And now you can see where this line is going. Uh, we have a listener who remembers turning on and hearing him in 1981. He was talking about you know, anti-Semitic people, like latent anti-Semitic people, quote, I know that you're listening. I want you to call B and tell me why you don't like Jews. Let's not pretend it doesn't. this doesn't exist. Let's stir it up. You're anti-Semitic and you know it and you've got real feelings about this and I want to find out what they are, end quote. So you're just, he's just ba- basically being like, you have issues? Let's explain to me what these issues are. I mean, that's a really good practice of calling in instead of calling out, even though he's like mm-hmm. asking them to actually call in but it's like actually having a conversation about it i think is more productive than ignoring those people if you're not the person that they're being violent or racist or terrible towards like if you're a part of the same uh racism and they're being like that like i think that's really it's the best way to get to move forward this is really where he gets his following um because he's willing to risk a lot and use his voice to for his opinion Mm -hmm. so and he would get the groups that, like, hated minorities. He would get them worked up, criticize them, and hang up before they could rebut his <laughs> So it was a... Okay, yeah. Maybe he's not calling in. <laughs> he's just... <laughs> uh, really, um, he quickly came upon this, like, one target. It's a Christian identity movement who thought Jews descended from Satan. And I'm just like, wait, what? What? <laughs> Have they not seen... The Bible. Okay, cool. Um, So he would attack them and like other groups and just kind of like point out how out there their beliefs are. But because of this, he constantly got death threats and hate mail from white supremacist groups. Quote, hopefully my legal training will prevent me from saying the one thing that will kill me, end quote, he once joked. Mm. So I just love there's like a couple. This is one really interesting um case that we're going to get to before we get to the actual crime that's going to happen in this okay on, on march 5th 1982 berg called ellen kaplan who at that time was the colorado secretary of state and had actually been in the news recently for yelling insults at henry kissinger when she spotted him in the newark airport so new york city mm-hmm. new jersey because of this his uh, kissinger's wife nancy attacked kaplan uh, by the way, Kissinger, he's not the best person, but probably not the greatest time to yell at him because he's on his way to Boston to undergo a coronary art- artery bypass operation. You don't want to stress that man out. 
No. You can have a heart attack right in front of you. Oh my god, imagine how bad she, like, and so it was all over the news. He got, Berg got Kaplan on the phone. She answered, he introduced her as a vile human being and <laughs> praised Nancy Kissinger's attack on her. <laughs> so, like, he's, like, controversial, to say the least. Kaplan yeah. hangs up, but he continues to ridicule Kaplan and, like, verbally abuse her for the rest of his I guess hour. I don't know how long his show was. Mm-hmm. They never said, but I'm assuming most radio shows are about an hour or so. I think so. Yeah. Um, this got uh, his radio station KOA a lot of complaints by listeners, Kaplan's boyfriend, and really the lawyers of the station were like, "Yeah, you should suspend him." So he suspended a couple days, and this kind of tones him down. And as his wife said, she goes, "He was an angry person." Quote. He wanted people to look at themselves and to be conscious of their thoughts and to take responsibilities for their attitudes and decisions, unquote. So he was one of those people who was like, if you're thinking this, look at why you're thinking and realizing your thoughts and your attitudes have, like, consequences. Mm-hmm. So, June 18th, 1984, it's around 10 p.m. in uh, Denver. Yeah, we're in Denver. Alan Berg pulled into his driveway after having um, dinner with Judith. They had separated at this point and he was trying to reconcile they were still good friends he steps out of his black volkswagen beetle convertible and all of a sudden he's hit with a flurry of gunfire (gasps) the assassin had illegally converted a semi-auto automatic weapon into an automatic weapon and he shot him 12 times whoa that's a lot yeah (laughs) yeah i'm laughing but i don't think it's funny it's just like a lot of shots like Wait, it's you, a nervous laugh, yeah. That's like intent to kill. Like that's not you're not playing. <laughs> not nope. Uh he was pronounced dead at the scene. There really was no immediate suspects. Because remember he had so like he had been threatened a lot, but you got no one really thought people would go through with it. Right. So because he had been targeted before by death threats and all that, everyone was like, it, it's pretty targeted. We just don't know who it is yet. Right. His coworker from KOA, Ken Hamblin said, quote, it was an assassination, unquote. Mm-hmm. And his uh, Berg's other friend, Al Zing, referenced it as a gangland killing. This brought, actually, the FBI got involved. Like, it was real uh... bad. Mm-hmm. They figured out the weapon used to kill him was traced to, uh, to the home of the member of the Order, which was a white supremacist organization that also was called the Silent Brotherhood. They always have those dumb names. Like that one that just came out, like in, um, actually, the 26, it was like a 21-year-old, 23-year-old, and 26-year-old up in Calhoun, Georgia. Just, I mean, it's 45, 45 minutes from my hometown, and then I think maybe like an hour or so from here, maybe a little less. Those people are called The Base. It's like, could you not come up with better names? Like, those are stupid. <laughs> the Order. The-, the Base. Like, the silent okay, Silent Brotherhood kind of is better. That is better, the, but I mean, stop trying to act like you're bigger than you are. Like, yeah, you're just, you're just scared. <laughs> so this was, you know, one of those Berg had gotten to heated co- arguments with the callers, and really, the last producer to work with him, Antha White, recalled the one in particular. This was the Christian identity group that argued that Jews were descended from Satan, and remember. Berg was Jewish. Hmm. On top of it, um, the Denver Post called their exchange uh, rancorous, and this is really what the producer 
uh, what you believe got him killed. Because, I mean, as soon as he, like, it was um, 47 police officers were dispatched to solve the murder. And they all kind of agreed, like, they're like, nah, this, this seems fishy. 11 shots, of course it's fishy. <laughs> yeah. And especially because they got so heated yeah. in that exchange. And I'm like, they do realize the radio stations record their shit. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> they ha- so the order was a militant white supremacist group. So not just a white supremacist group, a militant one that had already been implicated in a series of robberies taking um, around $4 million and a counterfeiting scheme uh, because they were using that money to overthrow the U.S. government, which they referred to as ZOG, or the Zionist Occupation Government. I can't. (laughs) I can't with these people. It's it's such a dumb name. Yeah, I mean, and too, it's like... Like, you get, they all think that they're, like, the smartest people in the world. And really dumb. Every time. Every time. They're never a smart person. It's just like... Do you want to hear how dumb it gets? It yes. gets dumber. <laughs> yes. So the order was pretty much known to keep a list of Jews, black people, federal agents, judges that they wanted to execute. Where did they keep this? And why do we know about this? Great question. <laughs> It was circulated on a white supremacist computer bulletin board system, a.k.a. early internet. Oh, I see. (laughs) And you know how I had really great control of the early internet? The government. Mm -hmm. The best place to keep something is the internet, especially if you want it to be a secret. Mm -hmm. And Berg's name was on that list, so. (laughs) (laughs) They're dumb. I told you it got dumber. It got way dumber. They're just like, we're going to put it up on the air. It's like, do you not think? That they're tracking this? At least give, like, I mean, if you're going to, like, try to murder people and you make a list, at least give them, like, fake names or give them code names that you only understand. Or maybe just paper. Yeah. Or don't, just don't murder people. Yeah. I feel like, again, every once in a while on the show, we have to remind people, please don't murder people. Or commit hate crimes. Yeah. So, they, so there were 10 defendants and there were 13 other names in a racketeering indictment. And their plan was to establish an Aryan homeland where whites could maintain the purity of their race, which is really funny because white people didn't even start here. <laughs> and I'm just like, I feel like who even wants to do that at this point? <laughs> I don't know why people care about that so much. Like I was at something the other day and it was talking about, um, it was actually, it was the first two students who integrated the University of Georgia uh, mm-hmm. school. They one of them is uh, one of them passed away when he was kind of younger. But then Charlene, who was the the woman who did, they were just talking about like they were talking about race and talking about things like that at this thing that I was taking pictures at. And I just thought to myself, I was like, I don't understand why people like. I'm not one of those like I don't see race people because it yeah. certainly like impacts people's life. Like being a certain race impacts your life, and I don't know that experience and. But, like, I just, like, don't understand why people are so obsessed with, like, maintaining the race. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, why do you care? Why, like, we're all, like, like, it's a human. Like, it's not, I don't, I don't care if everybody else is white. I don't want everybody else to be white. <laughs> this went all the way up to the U.S. District Court because, you know, hate crime. <laughs> and they heard that the defendant, Bruce Pierce, allegedly the gunman, and we're going to go through all the individuals. Um, he scared neighbors with automatic weapons, would fire 
like he would fire the weapons at homes at the home he rented in Montana. So, you know, smart and once it shoot a threat, quote, there's gonna be there's going to be dead cops in the road, end quote, if anyone tried to stop him. What? Yeah. And this is a white man, obviously, because if it was a non if it was a person of color, they would be arrested immediately. And not even arrested, they'd probably be shot immediately. Yeah. By and the this police. is in Montana too. <sighs> and people are just talking about about Alabama, but then like there's those people yeah. that they live out in those places that are like Montana, Wyoming, like South. I'm sorry for everybody who lives there, but I was the in Alabama. The Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Yeah, like all these people who do this like crazy stuff who like are trying to go against the government. But everyone's worried about how like terrible all the white people are in Alabama. It's like you need to think probably about other people too. <laughs> Wait, you don't know someone who's in a militia? Is that just me? <laughs> uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> I know one person in a militia, and he's from the UP. That's fine. Like, like, what is it? Why is he in it? It's just—it's just a thing you do up there. You join a militia. So this is really where the police, like, they hear about this. They probably find the list on the early internet, and they're like, "Okay, we got to figure out which members." They quickly go to the head of the group, Robert J. Matthews, which is. The whitest name I could think of. Robert John Matthews. <laughs> oh, it's J. It's not even John. It's just J. Oh, well, it's, is it the abbreviation J or J? No, J-Y. J-A-Y. Oh, man. Fuck J. <laughs> <laughs> That's my ex's name that just broke up with me. So. Really fuck him. <laughs> yeah. So he was thought to have been the lookout. So he's the, like, you know, they're looking at. And he was out in Oregon, so, like, they just scattered into the wind. He nearly escaped arrest in the motel in Oregon. He holed up um, in his house on a rural island in Washington State with a shit ton of weaponry. They referred to it as a heavy arsenal. Which means, I'm guessing, a lot. And, I mean, there's areas in Washington State you could fucking do that. People would be like, yeah, that's just crazy Joe. That's it's fine. That's terrifying. That's absolutely. One of my former bosses told me about all the ARs he had. And I was like, are you serious? Why? Like, are you, like, you make me feel really stressed out because I know that you're always, like, really stressed out. And, like, now I'm worried that, like, you're going to come in here and, like, try to be, like, stressed out on us. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't want it. <laughs> no. So it took 36 hours of sieging the island slash house. There were over 100 agents involved. And it took, yeah, like, night and day. As soon as it got dark, they had the helicopters dropping flares to illuminate the house. Well, it caught it on fire. Ooh, did they burn? Uh, and, well, there's Matthews is only in there, so there's one person in there. Did all of the ammo go off? Did it just start exploding? So the house is on fire, and they're like, surrender, surrender. And then he just responded with machine gunfire as the ceiling caves in. <laughs> I'm laughing because it feels like an appropriate death for this, like, dumb person. <laughs> it's like a movie death, like, yeah. legitimately. It seems, I was like, when I was reading, I was like, what is happening? <laughs> so, the problem is, it's a real key link to the murder. Because mm. he had actually, he was the chatty Cathy of the group. <sighs> he went around and talked about it to a lot of people. And really, no one else confessed. There was really no other witnesses or evidence. So they're like, we need, they needed him alive and everything's on fire. So (laughs) 
I don't know if the ammo went off. That is a valid question because ammo is like the gunfire is heat induced. So yeah, I feel like it would just be like. And there's a hundred agents everywhere, so you're just like, what do you do? Just lay on the ground until it stops, and lay down like shooting really flat, (laughs) flat as you can be. Also, he's like shooting as he's dying. He's shooting a machine gun. So, (laughs) which why does he have a machine gun? And now I'm having flashbacks to Scarface. Um, okay. So, because of this, prosecutors are like, okay, let's try to get them under a RICO statute. So, that's the Racketeering Influenced and Corrupt Organization, mm-hmm. aka like how you normally get organized crime and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. They, they, so, they wouldn't be tried for first degree murder, but they could be tied in a racketeering scheme that included the murder along with, you know, the robbery and the counterfeiting. So, they're like, okay, there's other things. So, we could smush it all together into a case. So we can at least get some justice. There's a lot of hand motions happening. There's boxes <laughs> and things. I'm doing. And they manage to actually get enough evidence to do this. We also have Bruce Pierce, who is the alleged trigger man of this. John Craig, who allegedly gathered evidences about Berg's coming and going. So he watched the house, watched him. We have David Laid, who was the getaway driver. He was also... In case you want to know how great this guy is, he was a former Klansman. He was also part of the neo-Nazi Christian identity group, which is known as the Aryan Nation. Neo-Nazi and Christian, like, they're just, like, those are just the same thing. (laughs) In a sarcastic way, I don't think they're the same thing. They don't mean the same thing. Like, Christians should not be neo-Nazis. Like, you shouldn't be. If they've read the, the book, no. Yeah. So... Lane had actually called into Berg's show in the past and had gotten into these verbal arguments on air. When they talked to him about the murder, he goes, I didn't do it, but I, I'm i not mad that it happened. Ooh, Mr. That Sassy. My, <laughs> that's my verbal, like, determination of it. But basically, he wasn't, he wasn't regretting that Berg was killed like that. I'm like, not great. So there's also Richard Scutari, who is another lookout. And really what keyed it all together is the gun was found in a home of another member of the Aryan nation who was associated with the order. So it's like a whole tangled web of white supremacy that murders people. So the RICO trial, they really focus on the conspiracy acts aspect of it. And they really looked for who organized it in the founding member of the group, the Denver Paw perimeter. Like they were trying to figure out why he was targeted. And this was, so this is in the 80s. This is the largest trial of a white supremacist group in the country Mm. at that time. Because, you know, anytime they did anything, they had to move them or deal with them. And they, I mean, the U.S. government and law enforcement has known about the white supremacy problem for a while. We're just now talking about it more. Yeah. Which is terrifying to think about. Well, I mean, the history of the police is insane. Like, especially mm-hmm. in the South, I really want to get someone to come on my podcast to talk to me about it. Because it's, like, policemen back in the day, like, basically were slave patrol. Yeah. And it's, like, what? Like, that evolved into what our police officers are today? Yeah. Like, how have you trained them differently? How have you, like, made yourself separate from what this is? And I don't just, like, cops are fine. I don't dislike cops. But it's still, like, how do you the separate history. yourself from that legacy? Like, how do you mm-hmm. do that? Why haven't you? done it and talked about it yeah oh yeah no it's a problem everywhere yeah uh uh, 
The main thing was, okay, so you're putting white supremacists on trial and members of the order. Well, the government, like, the law enforcement knew that the order was highly militarized and really tended towards brazen acts of violence. So anytime you have to, you have to move these guys from prison or jail to the courthouse for their trial. Because, again, 80s, we do not have video conferencing and stuff (laughs) like that. It's really hard to do. (laughs) They would have 20 heavily armed U.S. Marshals escort the defendants into armored vehicles to transport them from the jail to the courthouse. A lot of protection for people who suck. (laughs) Yes. But you have to think about if, like, they get broken out or something, you're not going to get the justice and you're probably not going to find them. That's true. I was thinking more of somebody, like, trying to assassinate them. I was thinking about the wrong side of it. Um, Also, you have to think about the fact that it's going to hurt the officers protecting them. True. So they and they also have to basically take different routes every morning, every evening, so they're not attacked. It's a lot of work. So those uh, marshals also have to remain in the courthouse halls during the proceedings to make sure nothing happens. Mm -hmm. You you should uh, if you're getting your fair trial, you need to be safe. Mm-hmm. And not threatened. So the jurors of the case were given a 62-page booklet of instructions on how to interpret the case. Because, you know, RICO charges. Most people don't deal with that. Oh, right. Yeah. Jurors deliberated for two weeks. And at the end of it, they determined and announced that all 10 of the men were guilty on the RICO charges. Hmm. But not on murder? Well, they see, they can't really, they couldn't really do that because they didn't have enough evidence uh. to say who shot the gun, who planned it, da 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 But they could t- say there was a conspiracy. Okay. So they get them on the conspiracy to commit murder on top of, like, the, the robberies and mm-hmm. planning to overthrow the government. Cramner uh, responded that Berg, quote, was mainly thought to be anti-white and he was Jewish, end quote. Which the whole question of whiteness is interesting and very complex and we're not going to go into that because that's going to get very intense yeah, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> so we have on top of the case we have uh, Dr. George Ogura who is the pathologist for Denver who determined that se- several of the bullets entered and exited Berg's body two or three times before he fell and one of the bullets shattered the base of his brain another passed through his heart uh, it was hard to determine what actually killed him because of that. And he was buried at Waldheim Jewish Cemetery in Forest Park, Illinois. And of the 10 in the RICO charges, four were indicted on fe- federal charges. So you have Gene Craig, David Lane, Bruce Pierce, and Richard Scudari. Only Lane and Pierce were convicted. Uh they couldn't do it of homicide because that's a state crime. So this is what I was saying. They got convicted of racketeering conspiracy and violating Berg's civil rights, which are federal crimes. So that's where, like, the kind of the hate crime comes into it. Mm-hmm. So those are all life terms, basically. Lane's sentence was 190 years. Uh, Pierce's is 252 years. So we have the order proven that they are re- willing to go and kill and commit crimes like this. The FBI still argued that the order was, quote, not a major threat, end quote, because of their small numbers. All the time, it's not their small numbers, it's because of their skin. <laughs> it's because they're white men. So this is a, had been, has been proven to be a really underestimation of their power. So they might be small, but as they 
investigated the group further, and groups like this would be shown to be a highly militarized web of white supremacist groups across the country. So, like I said, a web. It's like a mm-hmm. links across the country. They're linked to numerous crimes and violent plots. What kind of plot, might you ask? Because remember, this is they got convicted in the 80s. In 1995, Timothy McVeigh would bomb a federal building in Oklahoma City, ending up killing 168 people. And that and was what... Ugh. Uh-huh. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> so, I'm going to end this with um, Mark Potok, who's the director of the Intelligence Project at the Southern Poverty Law Center. I was actually um, going to talk about them. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, sorry. <laughs> who really looks at Berg's assassination as a precursor to the Oklahoma City bo- bombing, saying, quote, in a sense, it was one of the opening shots of a truly revenu- revolutionary radical right willing to countenance the mass murder of American civilians for their cause, end quote. The Southern Poverty Law Center is also really good as far as, like, figuring out what is actually a hate group. I think more so than the actual government, because I think the government's a little slow on moving with that. But they're good. They're a really good resource for that. And they're based in Alabama. Yeah, they're very good at determining, like, what level to, like, hey, this is a really organized hate group. Mm-hmm. Or these are just a couple kids messing around in a forum and yeah. stuff like that. So, yeah, it's crazy to think that one man's, like, basically radio show ends up getting him assassinated and we see this connection leading all the way to a bombing of a federal building. Yeah. I mean... You just gotta you gotta be careful when you're broad like when you're broadcasting us as podcasters, broadcasters, journalists. You gotta be careful who you talk to. People are people are crazy, and then they like all get indoctrinated into the same thing, and then mm-hmm. end up bombing a, bu- a building and killing a bunch of people in Oklahoma. It's crazy. Yeah, it's this was intense, especially when I was researching it because he seemed like someone who really just wanted to make people think yeah. and question and realize hey, maybe that doesn't look right. Mm -hmm. And some people, not everybody can handle that, I guess. Yeah. I mean, yeah, some people just don't want to have their views challenged. And like, they're, they're just so like entrenched in their, in their hate. And then what they've always been taught that they can't even, like they, they can't even begin to think about anything differently. And then when you challenge it, like it's just anger that comes out because I feel like maybe they're not that smart anyways. And, like, anger is the response you get. Like, anger is just, like, your, like, carnal response. Like, it's, mm-hmm. I don't know if carnal is the right word, but it's, like, your, like, animal is, like, not animal is. It's your response that you go to first. Like It's if your some, monkey brain response. Yeah. So, like, it's what you, re- like, immediately what you do. And so that's what all those people are going to do because they're not, generally, they're not evolved humans. Or they just, you, I think a lot of the situation would be better if you interact more with people of different cultures, races, mm-hmm. creeds, sexualities. And realize, oh, they're actually, everybody's actually humans. Mm-hmm. And we're just all on this rock in space trying to live our best lives. Yeah. <laughs> determining what's real and what's not. That's all we're doing out here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it is, a, I mean, it's a shame that people couldn't, that he wasn't protected in the way that he needed to be. But if you have to think about it, how frequently were journalists being attacked or like even just radio hosts being attacked in the 80s yeah 
I mean, <laughs> just getting out of journalism now, like I've, I've been out of it now, I think, uh, what is it? I guess like two and a half years at this point. And like, I mean, it's, it's scary. Like it's scary being out there. Like not even, and it's not even stuff that you like, like when you're writing that stuff and when you're taking pictures or like for him, it was his opinion and it was his, what he was wanting to talk about but like for a regular like for just like a journalist that's like a print or like broadcast you're just out there to tell the story and all like in the last couple of years it's just that like people are so aggressive towards you and people are so like always being like oh the fake news media and like not believing you and like it's, it's a really hostile environment for journalists right now and i it's scary like I'm glad, I'm like glad I'm not in it, but at the same time, I'm still like, I don't think I'm ever not a journalist. Like once you're a journalist, I feel like you're always a journalist, (laughs) but I feel for everybody who's out there like reporting and y'all should believe your news reporters, but make sure you check your sources. (laughs) Yeah. See, like see who they're talking to, see the different points of views. Mm -hmm. You can, if you're going to do a news story leaning one way, you have to acknowledge that. Yeah, I mean, most in most places, too, that are, like, that's advocacy journalism. That's not straight journalism. And most, it, I'm not going to, I'm not going to broad, I'm not going to lump broadcast into this because that's not what I know. I know print. But, like, print is not that way. Like. For the most part, yeah. <laughs> from, yeah. Uh, for what I know. It's <laughs> and, and we're taught, like, in journalism school to not, like, even if it is something that we feel passionately about. Because. There was an article that I did and I felt very passionately about it. And I knew my, I knew what my opinion was, but I knew that I had to talk to the people that didn't agree with me. And so I did go and interview them and talk to them and came back and put the article out. And the people who I happened to agree with and the people that I didn't agree with, they both came and told me that they thought the article was really like fair and balanced and like they didn't see my leanings one way or another, which I was really proud of. And I feel like that's what like journalists in general strive to do. This guy on the radio though, he like, I mean, he, he, he was there to like, he was just stirring Stir stuff things up. up. Yeah. And that's a, ra- like, that's a radio personality. I feel like it's not what, yeah. and I don't know. I don't even know if I, like, unless it's NPR, I don't consider radio a journalist anyways. <laughs> yeah. I think in some regards he wanted to stir it up to get those conversations started. Yeah, and yeah. That's a good thing to get conversation started, but then you have to look at both sides, and I feel like we never do that really anymore. Yeah, it's it's hard to do because people just on both like on both sides, people just don't want to hear it. Um, they don't want to hear. It. That's another thing that's frustrating about journalism is that like nobody, no one thinks you you have good intentions. Not the people who lean left, not the people who lean right, not the centrist. No one thinks you have good intentions. <laughs> But you do. <laughs> you just want to tell the story. Oh, yeah. Get off my high horse here. <laughs> <laughs> Allison, do you want to tell everyone where they can find you not on this podcast? Yeah. So my podcast is Not Your Little Lady, and it is on all of the podcast apps for the most part. iTunes or Apple, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. And like I said before, special shout out to CastBox. Um, and then, um, for social media, you can find me at not your little lady on Facebook and Instagram, and you can find me at ladies of NYLL on Twitter. And then also too, I'm a photographer, former photojournalist, as I mentioned, (laughs) Um, and you can follow me, my photo page at Allison Carter photo. 
on Instagram. Allison sadly will not be back next week. We'll have a new guest. I hope y'all don't miss my accent too much. Or my political rant. <laughs> or my ranting about journalism. <laughs> Feel free to tweet at her about how much you miss her accent on the show. Hey. <laughs> Yay. We'll be, we'll be back next week with another guest and to hear another story. Who will it be? I don't know. The list has stopped at a certain point that I planned out. The world is your oyster. Topics and guests. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Bye. Hey there. It's Allison Carter. I'm the host of the podcast, Not Your Little Lady. Each episode features a woman living in the South outside of socially accepted norms. Listen and relate as these women share stories about obstacles they faced and how it feels to come out on the other side. We talk about things that pissed us off, the booze we like to drink, and historical women who have made a difference. Through all this, we explore the importance of women owning their past, present, and future while keeping it light and funny. You can find episodes, which are released every other Wednesday, on most podcast listening apps or at notyourlittlelady.com. Be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter at ladiesofnyll and on Facebook and Instagram at notyourlittlelady. Happy listening, y'all. Targeted. True crime, domestic violence. We tell stories of those who were targeted by domestic abuse and investigate cases of family violence using academic research to interpret the events. As a college professor, I think we need to stop making family violence a secret. Let's use our stories to help heal and provoke change. Season three features the case of Josh Osborne, which is a story of abuse when he woke up, she was abusing him. When he went to sleep, she was abusing him. So his abuse was nonstop. It didn't matter what he did. Yeah. It was nonstop. But it is also a story of hope. Targeted. True crime, domestic violence. Listen to us for free on all of your favorite podcatchers. Peace, my friends. Peace. Cults of Domesticity, we're available on all podcatchers. Remember to rate, review, subscribe to help spread the word or just force other people to listen to it. Our Facebook and Twitter are at Domestic Podcasts, and our Instagram is at The Cult of Domesticity. We also have podcast merch at Threadless. Uh, As well, if you want to support us financially or show some appreciation, we have a PayPal tip jar and a Patreon, which has some pretty great perks. Any topic suggestions, feel free to email us at domesticpodcasts at gmail.com. Remember to stay domestic and cult-free.